Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter. Good to have you with us. Something we've been watching for a while now is how coronavirus has impacted the way we vote. A lot of us feel unsafe gathering in public places to cast a ballot. Poll workers, many of whom are older, are understandably anxious about continuing to volunteer in a job that requires constant contact with thousands of people. So it's not surprising that voters have been turning to absentee ballots. But while increased access to mail ballots is a win for democracy, it has changed the reality of election night. Most states do not have the equipment or the people power needed to process this deluge of ballots in a timely manner. Kentucky and New York held their primaries on Tuesday, but here we are a few days later and we're still waiting to hear the final results. Even so, it looks all but certain that a number of young candidates of color, many who ran on progressive platforms, won primaries. On Friday, I talked with Ested Herndon, national political reporter at The New York Times, and Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. People really were assuming it was going to be bad. I was one of them. We were told that there was a single voting location going to be open in the two, the state's two largest counties where Louisville and Lexington are. What it turned out to be the case was that there had been a great deal of planning and bipartisan planning between the Republican Secretary of State, Mike Adams, and the Democratic Governor, Andy Bashir, and all of the local election officials. And these two single locations that were opened in each of those counties were actually these cavernous facilities. One was an expo center that normally houses the Kentucky State Fair, and the other was the football stadium of the University of Kentucky. And they had dozens and dozens of um, booths for voting, you know, queued up, cordoned off lines for different precincts and uh, hundreds of poll workers. So the national, you know, readership and media didn't quite grasp that until Election Day when things actually started going okay. There were some problems. There were some longer lines in Lexington. And then they were fixed because the State Board of Elections held an emergency meeting and they sent some new equipment to that location and things got better. Um, And and it wasn't perfect. The the media broadcast these folks who were locked out in Lexington and Louisville and, you know, it wasn't ideal, but it was nothing like uh, Georgia or Wisconsin. Um, and then in New York, I think the there were problems, but th- it turns out that they were the kinds of problems that we actually see reported in New York every election. You know, poll locations opening a little late, uh, confusion about where to go. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I really think the takeaway for Kentucky especially is that people work together and really try to fix this instead of just pointing fingers at each other, which is totally what happened in Georgia and Wisconsin. But Amy, it is the end of the week and there was an election on Tuesday and we still don't have a winner declared for the Democratic Senate primary race. Um, Why is that? And what does this mean potentially for November? Right. Well, uh, it's because so many people voted by mail. And uh, I believe the ratio is going to turn out to be something like uh, three to one voting by mail in Kentucky, which is a complete reversal and then some of what normally happens in a non-pandemic year. So that takes time. The other thing is, I mean, there are lots of rules that govern counting and there's lots of equipment that makes it go more easily. So 
Some states allow local election officials to start counting the ballots as they come in. So starting weeks before the election, they can start, uh, sorry, not counting, but opening and processing Mm -hmm. them. They don't actually hit the tabulation button on the scanner until election night or afterward. But in Kentucky, you can't actually start the processing until 8 a.m. on election day. So that really you know, ties their hands. And there are lots of other states who have not altered their rules to accommodate this flood of mail ballots. The other thing is that you need these high capacity scanners to do it quickly. You need more people to process the envelopes, open them, uh, verify the identity of the um, voter. Uh, Some states even have these machines that open, they slit open the envelope. And some states even have these machines that unfold and flatten the ballot to make it go into the scanner more easily. And these are all really nitty gritty details, but they're really important in counting quickly. And that's not going to happen in a lot of states in November. And then the last and most important thing is how, um, how early ballots have to get there. Some states allow them to be postmarked by election day, which means that they're not going to even arrive until Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So there's no way the counting will be done. And the question is how many arrive that late. And so people really are going to have to get used to the fact that it's going to take time for these states to report their results. So for those of us thinking about election night in November, what we should be prepared for is the really serious potential that a winner of the presidential election and many of these congressional races will not be declared on election night or even by Wednesday or even Thursday? It really depends on how close the race is. If Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin are really close, like they were in 2016, we all remember, those states decided the election after midnight with a margin of, a combined margin of something like 90,000 votes, remember? (laughs) And uh, then we will not know because no one's going to call that based on the fact there are still ballots out and enough ballots that could change that outcome. If those states are landslides for either Joe Biden or President Trump, that's a different story. You know, I do think that the Associated Press and the networks are working hard right now to figure out what their protocols are going to be for calling. And and so it's going to be very interesting to see. But if it's a close race, and let's face it, it most of us think it, it will be. It's, it's always close, right? In some state or another, that's important. We may not know. Instead, I want to move to the people who ran in these races. Again, they have not officially been declared the winners, but it looks because in some of these cases, it was something of a landslide. It looks like they won. In New York, a young uh, African-American former middle school teacher defeat a longstanding incumbent, Democratic incumbent, Elliot Engel. What do you attribute the success of these candidates to? You know, what we saw on this week was a kind of roadmap for progressive candidates to kind of build in coalitions. In the race you're talking about, Jamal Bowman, a uh, former principal in New York, looks like he is going to beat Elliot Engel fairly handily. Mm-hmm. And um, what, that, what that coalition looks like in that community is kind of a combination uh, of doing well among communities of color. That was still a majority uh, a personal color district, but also like pulling together a kind of white liberal class who is more typically associated with uh, the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders uh, a kind of primary uh, uh, universe. But then combining that with your kind of typical you know, Joe Biden, a voter who might be seen as more ideologically mo- moderate, 
but it's not actually the the, the moderateness that was driving them. Uh, that Bowman was able to make a case on a kind of trust level uh, to these folks. And we've seen this replicated across the country. So even just this week, this is the same type of coalition that Charles Booker uh, out in Kentucky is trying to put together. Cameron Webb, a Democrat who won in Virginia, was not uh, kind of as uh, vocally progressive as the other two, but they're still able to, to do that. And I think it's important to note that identity is a key part of this. So you're able to combine the argument of kind of uh, change on the policymaking front with a representation change also. I think back to the blueprint of this, actually not being a, being an AOC that people mentioned, but uh, Ayanna Presley out in Massachusetts, mm. who beat an incumbent as a city councilor, as someone who was known in the district, had trust in the district, but was able to, to combine a kind of message of progressivism with what I remember the slogan being, change can't wait. That was not only progressive change, that was about her identity also. That's a really, really good point. And I'm wondering then what you think their impact will be. Talk about their impact potentially when they come to Washington. I think a lot of folks who cover the Hill have been wondering when or if there is something like an AOC-led coalition that butts up against the more tradition-bound Pelosi coalition. Are we headed for that, do you think? The numbers aren't there yet for there to be a real clash. So when you look at what would be the kind of opposing force to to what we would call the Pelosi or establishment wing of Democrats, it it might be the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus or something, but there is not enough there's not uh, enough kind of ardent progressives, folks who are willing to, to block legislation to really gain power, what we would call the, the Freedom Caucus of Democrats. There hasn't been enough of them to necessarily force uh, Pelosi and the kind of mainstream wing's hand. That might, they might gain a couple in this cycle, but it, we're not going to see, it's very doubtful that at this point we see enough that it's really a, a full kind of like ardent, uncompromising coalition of progressives. What I think that we are seeing, though, uh, is is a, a growing force that can impact legislation and can impact um, the type of people who run in the future. You know, a point that I try to make is that for the progressive takeover of the House to happen, the left would need to to beat back some of the moderate Democrats many of whom are in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus or in the Congressional Black Caucus. Their biggest wins so far have come against white incumbents, particularly those representing majority person of color districts. That is a start, but they're not going to be able to make the mass inroads that they want until they're able to beat some of the Black or Hispanic incumbents who represent the part of the deepest blue districts in the country and are oftentimes more moderate than some of the left wants them to be. Well, and there also seems like what you have, and again, this is true with every class that's elected to Congress, you know, they reflect the moment in which they're elected. And so you're going to get folks elected in this class and this year, many of them saying, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm coming here to make big structural change. This is a different moment and things like the pandemic and things like these national protests around police brutality and racial inequality has helped fuel a new class of Democrats and will uh, kind of be a through line between the types of people we see through November. But that does create a challenge. Um, What they are hoping 
to bring to Congress in the next go round will be a very big tent, right? It will include uh, the Joe Manchins in the Senate, and it might include John Ossoff in Georgia, and it might include a Mark Kelly in Arizona. Those are very different types of Democrats. Mm -hmm. And if the party is uh, going to govern um, in the kind of way that it wants, whether it's under a Joe Biden administration, that is going to be an interesting pressure point. I think that the types, what you hear from progressives, particularly right now, is that they are gearing up, even in a Joe Biden administration, to place significant amount of pressure to kind of assert their agenda in that White House. And I think that this can be a real kind of moment uh, for Democrats. How are they going to, to, to make sure that each wing of the party feels uh, kind of safe and politically safe? Well, Stead Herndon, thank you so much. Amy Gardner, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Happy to be here. Thank you. Amy Gardner is a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Stead Herndon is a national political reporter at The New York Times. We spoke on Friday. We just heard from The Washington Post's Amy Gardner about how challenging it's been for many states to keep up with the deluge of ballots that are cast by mail. So I wanted to understand how this all works at the county level. Pennsylvania's primary was held on June 2nd. In suburban Philadelphia's Montgomery County, the third largest county in the state, 120,000 people voted by mail, another 88,000 voted in person. It took days for all votes to be counted. Now, that might not seem like such a big deal right now, but Pennsylvania is an important swing state and one of a handful of states that will decide who the next president is. And that's something most Americans expect to know on election night. Montgomery County Commissioner Ken Lawrence feels the weight of that pressure. We are able to begin counting at 7 a.m. on Election Day. Um, but, the, you know, the first thing you have to do is actually remove all of the ballots from the envelopes that they come in. So it is a painstaking process. For November, we will have more machines. We will have more people. But the, the thing that we really need more of is time. Most states allow you to begin counting the mail-in ballots two weeks before Election Day. Um, it, you know, we really have two elections we have to run now. We have the in-person election, but then we have the mail-in election as well. Um, and I would, like, I would like us to get to the point where we can count all of our ballots and be able to, to declare the election that day. Uh, but, you know, if we had 120,000 ballots for the primary election, I expect that we will have over 200,000 in the general. And at some point, no matter how many machines you have, how many people you have, it still is a painstaking process mm -hmm. to, 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 to do that. What's the holdup? Why is it a problem to count the votes as they come in and just keep a running tally that, of course, does not get released until the polls have been closed? I would see absolutely no holdup with that. Um, I guess I was living in a bubble and I didn't realize what a partisan thing uh, mail-in balloting had become. Of course, Ken, the agreement that was made between the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor was last year, long before the president started tweeting yeah, out long about long before this became a political issue. And certainly that the president started tweeting out about how voting right. by mail is rigged. You know, and one of the things that, that came out of this legislation, too, was the elimination of um, straight party 
tickets, um, which the Republicans very much wanted. Um, so, you know, they they got some things out of this as, as well. Um, it, it is a shame that it's become such a contentious issue. I think it's actually a public health issue now as well. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know where we're going to be with COVID-19 in November, but here in Montgomery County, you know, 25 of our polling facilities were typically at a senior living facility or senior center. They are not going to be polling facilities um, in November. You know, we used all of our schools uh, for for polling locations in in the primary because the schools were closed because of COVID. You know, I don't know how the schools are going to feel um, about being used as polling locations in November. You know, where certainly they would have to close on election day, but they would need to close at least the day after too to have the schools disinfected. Can um, one last question? I want to switch gears here to talk about. Um what we're seeing across the country right now, of course, a wave of protests in response to the killing of George Floyd. And I was reading recently that the Republican commissioner there's uh, on the Montgomery County Board uh, has gone under a lot of criticism for making negative comments about Black Lives Matter. Protesters have shown up in front of the county courthouse, have shown up in front of his house. Can you talk to us about... Um, how Montgomery County residents there are responding to this wave of of protests and anger over not just George Floyd, but racial inequities, police violence. We've had protests and vigils and rallies um, across Montgomery County. Um, and it's, it's really been inspiring to see as an African-American man, um, to see the diversity that's come out. The minority commissioner, and by minority, I mean the Republican commissioner, um, certainly doesn't speak for the board of commissioners. Um, and I do not believe he speaks for the vast majority of Montgomery County residents. Um, he was censured uh, by myself and Valar Kush. Uh, there's, there's an impeachment resolution that's been introduced in the House of Representatives. You know, he has to own his own words, and and he does, and he stands by them. Um, but I, I do not stand by him <laughs> physically, um, <laughs> literally, uh, in any way, shape, or form. He, he called it, right, like a terrorist, but Black Lives Matter was a yes. terrorist organization? Yeah. yeah. And and referred to so-called systematic racism. I, you know, it's it, it doesn't speak to the Montgomery County that I know, um, and, and represent. And I, I feel elected officials, we have freedom of speech, um, but we have an obligation to use our words to, to uplift um, and not incite. And, and you know, some, some of it was just factually just wrong. One of the things that's impressed me the most, though, too, here in Montgomery County is a lot of these protests and marches and vigils and rallies have been led by high school students. The younger generation definitely is not tolerating this. Um, and they have been spearheading a lot of the protests, which which gives me hope for the future um, and for my two sons as well. Yeah, I, I want you to reflect on that, too, because, Ken, you've been in Montgomery County basically your whole life, right? Yes. Um, and it's just recently, within the last 20, 25 years, that Montgomery County has become more democratic. This was, you know, sort of tree-lined white Republican suburbia for so long. And so are are you surprised when you see the outpouring of support for Black Lives Matter and, as as you pointed out, younger people 
coming in and taking to the streets on these issues? I've seen the county get more and more diverse during my, my lifetime here. Um, and, and not just African-American, but uh, Hispanic and Indian and, and all that. So I've really seen the diversity grow here um, in Montgomery County, but there are still issues. I mean, there are still systemic racism issues here in policing, um, around housing, things like that. So, you know, I think in many ways, this has torn the scab off of some of these things. Um, and we need to have hard conversations, but you know, the majority of people want to move forward um, and they want to see equity. Ken Lawrence is on the Board of Commissioners in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as we know, Pennsylvania will be under a microscope heading into the general election. President Donald Trump won the state by just under one point back in 2016, and Democrats are eager to take it back. But while Democrats have been successful in places like Montgomery County and other suburban areas outside of Philadelphia, they've struggled in more rural and western parts of the state. But in 2018, they had a breakthrough. Connor Lamb, a 33-year-old Marine veteran and former prosecutor, won a March 2018 special election in a western Pennsylvania district Trump had won by 19 points. He ran as a pro-Second Amendment, pro-fracking, moderate Democrat. And in November of 2018, he ran and won in a redrawn seat, which Trump had also carried. When he ran back in 2018, Lamb didn't mention President Trump very much. I asked him if that will be different this time around. Uh, you know, it comes up a lot, so there's, there's no avoiding it. <laughs> People ask me about it. The truth, as I see it, is that the basic economic issues that every family faces here in Western Pennsylvania, uh, that story starts long before Donald Trump comes along. I mean, Western Pennsylvania was an area that was built around um, some particular industries in steel, manufacturing, coal production, that kind of thing. And we have, we have made a partial transition into the 21st century, but not as rapidly or as well as some other parts of the country. And a lot of people around here have felt a fair amount of economic pain under administrations of both parties. They've seen kids go off to fight wars under administration of both parties and trade deals that they didn't think were to our advantage. And of course, the opioid epidemic, which which hit this area very hard. And so I always tend to think that um, the most important thing is to focus on on these problems and what we're actually doing about them. And in most years in American politics, you're going to need some bipartisan cooperation in Washington to get things done. And so that's been a little bit more of of my emphasis because I just think it's it's more important to kind of finish the job on legislation and try to make changes than it is to focus on any one personality. Well, your opponent, um, Sean Parnell, is arguing that you are not as bipartisan as you make yourself out to be. I was watching an interview he did with a local TV station where he criticized you. He said, 
he basically ran as a Republican, but now he votes with Nancy Pelosi 90% of the time and votes with the most liberal members of the um, of the Democratic Party in Washington. What do you say back to him about that? And and do you expect that Nancy Pelosi and AOC and other members of the Democratic constituency are going to make their way into attack ads against you? I'm sure they probably will. And they did all that same stuff in, in 2018 before I ever even served in Congress. So to me, the fact that they spend so much time talking about people who do not serve in Western Pennsylvania and have no connection to Western Pennsylvania tells you most of what you need to know. You know, if these guys want to run against the squad or run against Nancy Pelosi, move to their part of the country and run against them. But that's not what's happening. You're running against me. And what I did in 2018 was that I promised my voters I would do my job in a specific way. Didn't hide the fact that I was a Democrat, always have been. Um, believe that we should put a thumb on the scale in favor of working people trying to make it into the middle class. But that one of the biggest problems we have in Washington right now has just been the stalemate that makes it hard for us to do good for anybody because, you know, just a lot of bills don't get passed. And so on the things I can control, like, you know, when I decide to try to introduce a bill and pass it, uh, it's always bipartisan. A huge, huge percentage of my votes have been bipartisan, as has uh, you know, those are the Democratic Party, by the way. A lot of people forget that we pass all these bills that Mitch McConnell never takes action on it. And we get Republican votes on almost all of them because we're trying to construct votes um, that can actually get through the ringer of the legislative process and do do real good in the lives of people. So they repeat these same attacks over and over again. That doesn't make them true. And uh, what I've tried to do in the last two years is just talk to as many of my constituents face-to-face as possible in these town halls. I still knock on people's doors, or I I did before the pandemic. And uh, to me, that's a way to get the truth out a little more effectively than, you know, some of the social media and TV attack ads and all that kind of stuff. You know, one other uh, line of attack that the president uses against Democrats writ large, and I'm sure we're going to see against Joe Biden, is that, you know, this is a party that wants to get rid of fracking, get rid of a lot of the jobs, quite frankly, that people in your district hold. How do you talk about this issue? Well, first of all, it's not true what they say about either me or Vice President Biden. Um, You know, Vice President Biden's campaign position is that uh, he's interested in banning fracking on public uh, lands, you know, federal lands which we have almost none of in Western Pennsylvania. All the drilling here occurs on private lands. So if anything, the, the Biden policy would favor us because you know one of the biggest challenges in the natural gas market right now is oversupply. So the gas is really cheap and it's hard for anybody to make money on it. So even when the vice president talks about things like gradually replacing or phasing out fracking, what does that mean? Well, I think one thing he's doing is just acknowledging that there is a transition taking place in the way we provide energy in this country. Um, I personally don't think that that a president of any party is like sitting at a control panel where they're going to be able to decide where the sources of energy comes from. Uh, in reality, they can help create incentives toward developing different kinds. Um, and there's probably going to be a demand for gas in some form for at least the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. I mean, that's just how the economy is. Um, what I think Vice President Biden is talking about is the fact that uh, a lot of people are very interested in increasing the amount of energy that we get from carbon-free or reduced carbon sources. 
Um, and that, in fact, that can be a great source of new jobs as we refit the economy toward that. I'm also wondering how you talk to your constituents about calls we're hearing across the country, especially from uh, from activists for defunding the police, how your constituents feel about this and what you're telling them about it. We've gotten a, a few different perspectives from constituents on that one. Um, but I think overwhelmingly people, you know, I don't represent a big city, even even considering Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm in the suburbs in rural areas, so I, I don't really hear as much uh, from people about defunding. And, and I've been clear with them that uh, you know, I don't think you get something for nothing. And I think the something that people want is better, more effective policing that looks at ways to de-escalate violence and address mental health issues more effectively and definitely be demilitarized and, and not have problem officers. And, and all of those things will take investments from the federal government, especially in order to do. This is something new that we have to build and expand upon. And the other thing that comes up is this idea that especially here in a state like Pennsylvania, our funding formula for things like schools is really unfair. And and the municipalities that have the weakest tax bases and the least ability to raise money get treated the worst. Uh, and, you know, what I've mentioned to people is let's just remember that in America today, Warren Buffett still pays a lower tax rate than his secretary. So we don't really need to raid the local police budget. What we need to do is have something more like tax fairness so that we can make these investments on a national level. So you would be more supportive of if if police budgets were to be reallocated, like if you say we're going to take 20% from a police budget and instead hire social workers or something like that? No, not really. I mean, I think what I'm saying is that I think we need to make more investments in school, in health, in social workers or whatever they are, but um, I, I don't see But the not logic. by cutting into... Right. I mean, exactly, exactly. There's a lot of places that we can turn for revenue that we should turn for revenue for a lot of reasons and then reinvest it in all these good things. Um, Just to give you a a point of reference, I mean, a police department in my district that has probably some of the toughest challenges when it comes to crime, they hire officers at a starting wage of $12.45 an hour with no benefits. They don't even get health care. And so uh, that's what we're facing in, in some communities in this country, including mine. And, and it, that's why it's, it's not really the fault of the police budget in these places. There's a lot we need to do across the board. Congressman Lamb, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's nice talking to you again, and uh, I'm happy to come back anytime. Conversations around police reform sound a lot different when you travel from Congressman Connor Lamb's district in western Pennsylvania east to Philadelphia. And it was here that Larry Krasner was elected as district attorney in 2017. He ran as a reform candidate, promising to reduce incarceration by changing sentencing practices, overhauling the bail system, and cracking down on police misconduct. Krasner points to a long history of corruption in Philadelphia that has led to its current police culture. Philly has a, I wouldn't say unique, but a very troubled history. Mm-hmm. When it comes to police accountability, police violence, one of the things that has gone on in Philly for a very long time is that the police department has effectively been the most powerful political actor. This is due in large part to the fact that the police union here is monolithic, single union, fraternal order of police. It has a lot of influence all the way across the state. And so when you have a district attorney or you have a mayor who wants to become governor or they want to become a U.S. senator, it's very important you know, that the city slicker candidate 
has the support of the FOP. So this is how we get, you know, Arlen Specter, who was DA in Philly when he's like 35, 36 years old. And he became a U.S. Senator. He became obviously the, the gateway to the U.S. Supreme Court. You have Ed Rendell, who was mm-hmm. DA at 33 years of age, and he became the mayor, and then he became the governor, and then he became extremely influential in the National Democratic Party. But both of them did it in large part on the strength of staying good with cops, and they were both DAs. And unfortunately, despite the fact there's a, an awful lot of really good cops in Philly, the leadership of the FOP is not good. It has not been good for a long time. It is extremely conservative, Republican, all white. These are Trump-loving people in a city uh, that is very anti-Trump and very diverse. And so there has been this outsized influence on the part of the Fraternal Order of Police leadership, not its membership, which has really been, honestly, pro-brutality, pro-racism, and has set the city back for a very long time. What happens now in the wake of calls for reform to the police and the way policing is done? Does this happen in Philadelphia? And as you pointed out, even when you have such a strong union, how, how does this work? So it is happening. I mean, there, there has been a generational shift. It's been going on for a while. Um, and we have had a compelling, important moment recently when the statue of Frank Rizzo was taken down. Right. Now, Frank was a, a beat cop, and then he was the chief of police. Uh, and then he became the mayor. And he stood very much for racism and brutality in Philadelphia. Everybody knew that. And when his was the only statue of a mayor that was right next to City Hall, the wheels of power, that was an important symbol to the rest of the city and very upsetting to a very diverse city, Um, you know, where 60% of the people are black, Latino, you know, otherwise brown, etc. It was a very important symbol. His mural was actually the most defaced mural in in a city of 4,000 murals. He has that kind of a shadow. And um, and Frank is gone. His statue, after years of controversy, was removed in the middle of the night by a mayor who has not moved quickly enough on that issue. But thank goodness this time he did. Uh, and, and it means something. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a DA in this moment in time, especially a DA who ran as a progressive reformer. And there have been a lot of arrests, of course, over these last couple of weeks here, especially for things like looting. How have you handled those? And how have you handled those differently than, say, previous DAs may have done? If you look back at the year 2000 in Philadelphia, it was the Republican convention. And what happened then was the political use of power by the prosecutor to deliberately detain people who'd done nothing wrong so that George W. Bush could have a cheerful convention and get his plane off the tarmac before anybody saw better. What actually happened there was 420 people arrested for felonies and misdemeanors. 99% of the charges did not result in a conviction. 98% of those defendants were acquitted. It was, frankly, an outrage. Uh, what's happening now is a better situation in the sense that I think, in truth, the police know better than to try to bring massive quantities of felony and misdemeanor arrests for mere protest activity. So they're using civil violations, which are kind of like tickets do not give you a criminal record, do not result in a bail hearing, nobody goes to jail for the majority of people. That is a positive development. My office really has nothing to do with it, but it's certainly positive as opposed to their lining up a thousand people because they gave out what I would estimate 
a thousand or more of these citations. It's better than having them, you know, the police ask us to charge all of those people. On the other side, there have been a lot of people charged. There was a 10 day period recently that really kind of encompassed um, a lot of the unrest. And that was about a thousand cases, about 600 of them were burglary, commercial burglary type cases, what some people might refer to as looting. Interesting to note that among them, more than 50% of those people had no prior conviction. They were nearly all 18 to 24 years of age and over 40% had never even had contact with the police before, never been arrested for anything. So um, while it is true that at one end of the spectrum, we saw some very cynical opportunistic criminals doing things like knocking over pharmacies to get the narcotics and then lighting them on fire, uh, a, a very large portion of the people who were arrested are not criminal by nature. They do not have a record to support criminal conduct. So we're going to have to sort that out. I mean, the whole point here is to do individual justice. There are people who deserve a second chance. There are people who just did five to 10 years in state prison and came out. And the first thing they did was, uh, you know, a felony burglary and second chance is not what they deserve. You know, we have arrested a police inspector for assault on the strength of a video showing him, you know, very violent, cracking over the head, a protester. And we have to, because you cannot have a world where everybody says, well, that makes sense when you have hundreds of arrests of civilians, but every single police officer is considered uh, to be someone acting with impunity. We cannot have a rule that all police are not accountable and everyone else is super accountable. That rule is what has applied in Philadelphia and in most cities for a very long time. But that is not what progressive prosecution stands for. It stands for even-handed accountability. It stands for using your power, not in ways that are political, to advance yourself, to become governor, to become senator. It requires you to use power in a way that is appropriate, that is restrained, that is balanced, and that's what we're trying to do. Larry Kresner, thanks for taking this time with me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Great to be on. Thank you. Larry Krasner is District Attorney for Philadelphia. As protesters continue to demand justice for George Floyd and accountability for police brutality, public symbols of white supremacy have become a target. Confederate statues have long held the ire of those who say they elevate those who fought and lost to keep slavery alive. Over these last few weeks, we've seen these statues and monuments toppled in cities across the country. Some, like in Charleston, South Carolina, have been removed by local authorities. Others have been pulled down by protesters. The focus on these monuments have also prompted many to re-examine the history they were taught about them. We asked you, how do you feel about the ways you were taught U.S. history in school? Is there anything you now realize you missed? Hi, this is Frances from Cornelius, North Carolina. I am flabbergasted at the historical moments in U.S. history that were never taught when I was in school. I am 62 years old and just now learning about the Tulsa Massacre and being reminded of how white-centric the age of slavery was taught. I'm embarrassed that I'm just now beginning to understand and learn about U.S. history from the perspective of black citizens. I wanted to talk about how the inaccurate retelling of history allowed for the Confederate monuments to exist in the first place, and how demands for the removal could impact the way schools teach the history of the Civil War and its aftermath going forward. 
Here with me are James W. Lowen, historian, sociologist, and author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, and Keisha Blaine, associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. These statutes and monuments, for the most part, are meant to uphold a racist past. And, and I think certainly those who support these statutes and monuments will argue that they are only meant to represent Southern heritage and pride and to um, uphold those who fought in the Confederacy. But for those of us who study history, we understand what the Confederacy stood for. We understand that the Confederate States of America fought to uphold slavery. And therefore, when we recognize leaders of the Confederacy and we leave up these monuments and statutes that are meant to glorify their actions, what we are doing is glorifying a racist past. You know, what you hear from a lot of folks who are either defending the monument or even maybe not 100% behind them, but they say, well, gosh, aren't we then erasing history? If you, if you don't let Gone with the Wind in the canon of available movies at HBO or, or taking down other symbols, you know, that is part of American history. And so you're, you're quote unquote, erasing history when you do this. I think there's a problem there. Uh, if you look at, for example, the largest single monument that's under duress right now, Lee in Richmond, all it says is L-E-E. You have to bring to it the knowledge that, in fact, he was in charge of the Confederate armies. But it doesn't really tell any history. All it does is glorify somebody, put him literally up on a pedestal so that we're supposed to look up to him. And it does this in the guise of history, but it's bad history. It's the history of uh, the Civil War that was popular during the Nader period, 1890 to 1940, when we were as racist as we've ever been as a country. So you're not really erasing history. What we need to do is take down these glorified statues and put up a historical marker saying, here's what was here, here's when it went up, here's why it went up, here's when it came down, and here's why it came down. And such a marker would tell much more history than L-E-E ever can. Well, Professor Berlin, can you speak to that about, you know, for those who maybe for the very first time are starting to be confronted with things in their own backyards? What activists have been trying to convey for the past few weeks, and certainly for the past few years, when we think about Black Lives Matter, They've been trying to send the message that the problem of American policing, the pattern of police killings, it's all very much connected to an underlying problem, which is structural racism. And so to be able to, to now talk about the Confederate statutes, the monuments, is to, is to pretty much say, listen, this is another manifestation, like this is another way in which black people uh, are, are treated in the society in, in the way that we're walking down you know, the streets, we're going to city parks, and here we have to confront uh, these glorified statues of people who would have called for our enslavement, right, uh, within the mm-hmm. context um, of, of history, certainly uh, within the context of the Confederacy. So, so it's all very much connected. Well, that brings us to this topic of learning about history and teaching history. And Professor Lowen, I want to start with you because you have written a whole book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. And you poured over all these history textbooks 
And what you found was that it teaches American history to our students in secondary school in a really flawed way. So did they catch up with the times, these textbooks? or no, they're still okay. terrible. One of the reasons why they are so bad, they have famous historians' names on the covers. But those historians, in most cases, didn't write what the books have inside them and, in fact, never even read them. So, for example, the largest book ever written, I think, for middle schoolers, The American Journey, uh, one of its three alleged authors is James McPherson. Now, McPherson is a first-class historian of the Civil War. He knows why the southern states seceded, but his textbook leaves completely mystified why the southern states seceded. Something about states' rights and something about slavery and something maybe about tariffs, and it's just hard to figure it out. So the people who are rewriting the textbooks are nameless hacks in the bowels of the publishers. Some of them have some history courses, some of them do not. And none of them have the social power or the scholarly power to diverge from what all the other books say. So they haven't really improved about the Civil War at all. Professor Blaine, when it comes to schools, there is still this hesitancy about quote-unquote, upsetting people with certain versions of what happened either during the Civil War and then more specifically after the Civil War. How, how, does, how did that come to be? I think that there is often resistance on the ground. I mean, certainly local school districts uh, often resist efforts to make changes to the curriculum. We see that even in the context of, of Texas, um, where only recently, within the last year and a half, were steps taken to actually acknowledge that slavery was a central factor uh, in the Civil War for so many years. Many textbooks simply uh, didn't teach that, and, and the struggle continues. And, you know, to this day, more than 100 uh, public schools, um, mostly located in the South, are still named after Confederate leaders. So when you understand that context, then you realize how difficult it is uh, to, to get the changes uh, implemented in these textbooks. People are holding on to a distorted version of the history. They would love to tell you a sanitized story. They would love to talk about states' rights, but they never want to acknowledge that in the end it was about the states' rights uh, to maintain slavery. Keisha Blaine. James Lowen, I really appreciate you all walking us through this and, and taking the time for this really important conversation. You're Thank welcome. you so much. James W. Lowen is a historian, sociologist, and author of Lies My Teacher Told Me. And Keisha Blaine is an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. We asked you, how do you feel about the way you were taught U.S. history in school? Is there anything you now realize you missed? Sarah Berry. I'm in Portland, Oregon. I learned nothing about how the South used vigilante patrols. I'm really horrified and I feel like the narrative was a kind of whitewashing. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. And our executive producer is Lee Hill. You can call us anytime at 8778-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Tanzina Vega is back with you on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.